If you missed last week, go ahead and, uh, well, not right this second, but at some point this week, feel free to, to check out the sermon last week uh, on our website or on Spotify, because this week is a part two to last week. But they, they play off each other kind of nicely. So if you missed last week, don't worry, you're not going to be totally lost. We've been walking through a section the past two weeks that is God's people praising him and then learning what it means to be his people, right? So they're in, in the beginning of chapter 15, we see them praising God for who he is and what he's done, and they're singing all this glorious praise, they're worshiping, and then, then they start to go, oh, so what does it look like to actually follow this God that just delivered us? We don't, we don't really know what that looks like. And last week at the we covered like half of chapter 15 and most of chapter 16, and we saw some rhythms of God's people kind of learning to, to live with him, right? They've, they've never really done this before, and you saw God patiently working with his people, and we identified there were four rhythms that God was leading his people through to, to kind of teach them what does it mean to live with him. We said to mold us in his image. We saw last week how he molds us in his image by listening to us, providing for us, refining us, and renewing us, right? So in these different trials and things that people went through, there was a rhythm of how God would listen to them and their complaints. He would provide for them what they needed, and he would also have to teach them what the provision looked like. And then he would refine them. He'd teach them something about him in the process. And then he would renew them. He'd bring them into a safe place, into his presence, where they, they could just be with him again. Uh, we're going to see this this work is ongoing. It's, it's still taking place at the end of chapter 16 and in all of chapter 17. And we're going to see this morning a little bit more of the why angle, right? Why does God work in this rhythm of listening, providing, refining, renewing, listening, providing, re refining, renewing? Why, why does God work in this rhythm? Um, and today, guys, we're going to see ultimately why God does this is because he molds us as his people by growing our reliance on and our remembrance of him. These, these two things are very much intertwined. We're going to see them in our scripture today. But the way that God is, is at work in our lives as he's leading us to bear his image and he's growing us in life with him, he's teaching us to rely on him and to remember him. So we'll see that in our scripture. We'll talk about why, why are those two things so vitally important for us in the lives as, as people of God. So this is beginning in Exodus chapter 16, uh, verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is the 10th part of an ephah. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, well, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? 
But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Israel said, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, saying, uh, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed, overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the people of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Father, we are grateful for the insight we get this morning as to the work that you are doing with your people. God, many of us probably feel like we're in the position of the Israelites where, God, we want to follow after you. God, we, we desire to see you come to be real in our lives and in the lives of others. Uh, but Lord, we we are still learning. We are still very green when it comes to knowing what does life with you look like. So, Father, as we, we got to see these rhythms of how you were at work in our lives last week, Father, let us, let us be stilled to the reality of why you work in this way and why is this important for us this morning. God, we love you and it is in your name we pray. Amen. Guys, some of, some of what you've heard has probably sounded pretty similar to the past couple of weeks. And thankfully, it's because our God works in rhythms and works in patterns that we, we actually get to see some things several times as we're, we're growing in him. So last, last week, as we're talking about the rhythms as how he worked, and today we're talking about the why, part of the answer to why God engages his people in these, these rhythms of listening, providing, refining, renewing, is because God molds us as his people by growing our reliance on him. That simply when he is working in our lives and he's working in these rhythms as he's, you know, delivering us and redeeming us, he is at work teaching us to rely on him. We see this in a couple different places in the scripture, beginning in chapter 17, verse 1. You see that he repeats the test for his people of being in a place without water to see how they'll respond. Right? Last week, right as they get out of the Red Sea, they're totally with God in the wilderness and they have no water. 
and they did not respond very well. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 24, they say, what shall we drink? They go to Moses, and they're grumbling. They say, Moses, what do we do? This week, same exact test, after having seen God provide and do multiple you know, acts of provision with the quail and the manna. And it's interesting, their reaction's not that much different. This time, they do go to Moses, but instead of saying, what are we going to do? They come to him, and they grumble, and they complain, and they say, give us water to drink. The Hebrew verb there where it says they're, they're quarreling with Moses is the verb reeb, which literally means to strive or to contend with. So they are coming to Moses against him at this point, angry that they're having to go to him. Like, really, Moses, you took care of this last time. You, you couldn't take care of it a second time. So they're, they're pretty frustrated that they're having to continually depend on Moses and on God to provide something as basic as water, right? God, we get that you can provide it. Why are you doing this to us again? And as it's, it's interesting to watch that as they're coming to Moses out of his, you know, their frustration, and we would probably feel frustrated if we were in the same place, Moses calls them out on it. He says, guys, in, in, at the end of verse 2, he says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? It's a refrain that has been coming up in the past few chapters where Moses is trying to point to people, you guys think that you're complaining against me. I'm just acting on behalf of God. Like, he's the one that you really are truly complaining against. And as he calls them out on it, they just continue grumbling. In fact, they, they repeat the nonsense of, we'd rather be back in Egypt that we've seen the past couple weeks, right? We'd rather be back in Egypt than die thirsty out here in verse 3. And you get a, a final little anecdote in verse 4. They're so frustrated, so agitated, so kind of spun up that they're ready to stone Moses. The one who's just led them out of Egypt. The one who's been showing them all of God's provision. They're, they're ready to stone him. And guys, it is, a, it is an interesting scene that you see the people of God so so frustrated at having to depend on God for something that they're ready to kill the anointed one that God has provided for them as the deliverance, the Messiah figure in the Old Testament. And as I was reading that this week, I started thinking, so where else in Scripture do we see a picture of this? A picture of God's people so, so fed up with having to depend and rely on God that when God's Messiah figure shows up, they're ready to put him to death. And it's what we see in Christ and his relationship with the Pharisees. Right? The, the people who should have known what the Messiah looked like the best. Because the Messiah, the, the Pharisees came to, to existence in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the prophets and between Jesus, to kind of lead the people of God in this, these Old Testament traditions. And they should have seen, knowing the Old Testament scriptures, they should have seen Jesus coming and recognized it. But they were, they were so, for them to do that, they would have had to basically give up all their authority, give up their leadership, give up their way of life. They, they had come to power because there was no Messiah. For them to admit the Messiah was here, they would have lost everything in their minds. And so they were, they were so ready to hold on to what they had rather than relying on God, that they were ready to crucify Jesus. 
and they led other people to be ready to crucify Jesus. And it's, it is an interesting parallel to see the same thing happening here. That God's people who have just seen him deliver, they've seen Moses as the guy who has been you know, literally showing them what God's deliverance has looked like. They're ready to kill him because they don't want to have to rely on God again. And guys, it is, a, it is an interesting reality, but it's one we cannot distance ourselves from because we're seeing in the Pharisees and in the Israelites that a heart that does not rely on God is not a heart that will stand for Christ. That, that literally, as, as the people of God are angry about having to rely on God, they're ready to stand in opposition of the one that God has set in front of them to deliver and to redeem them. And it's interesting because they're, you could convince yourself, if you're the Israelites, that you are relying on God because you're going to Moses and you're telling him, Moses, give us water to drink. Like, you were able to do this last time, do this again. Right? It feels like they're relying on God. But if they're ready to kill Moses, that is not a heart that is relying on God. Right? If, if they are ready to stand in opposition to the one that God has placed to deliver and to redeem them, that's not a heart that's reliant on God. In fact, what we are seeing here is a picture of God's people really relying on themselves because, hey, if Moses took care of this last time and we want to get the same results that we got last time, we need to go to Moses and make him do this again. It's a heart that's not relying on God, so it is a heart that doesn't stand for Christ. And so when what this will you know, practically look like in our lives is, is again, we, we tend to also, because our God is a God of rhythm and of patterns, we look for that in our lives. And if you're like me, my, my undergraduate degree was in engineering, right? All of everything I studied revolved around finding the pattern, finding the, the rhythm, and, you know, choosing the right equation, putting your variables in there. But what you're seeing is that we, we tend to rely on ourselves the way that we used to do things because it got us to where we wanted to go. And we convince ourselves that, yes, it is relying on God because we saw him work in this way last time. But, guys, it is a very, very dangerous train of thought to follow because we see in multiple places in Scripture it leads us to actively oppose and be ready to put to death the work of Christ. In Scripture, we see a literal, they're ready to put to death the person of Christ. And the representation of Christ. So if we, if we are to be a people standing for Christ, it should make sense to us. God is going to teach us more and more as we get to know him. We have to rely more and more on him. Which, which often means a, a letting go, which is an intimidating and a, a very uneasy work. But the more we are relying on God, the more we are actually able to stand on Christ. And we're also seeing in this chapter as God is teaching his people to rely on him. It's, it's not, a, not a reliance to try and get things to happen a certain way. right? That The people of Israel are, are thinking we just need the same thing as last time. And God is saying you, you don't just need the same thing as last time. You, you need me, period. And in chapter 17, verses 8 through 10, we, we actually start to see the people are starting to get this. Because we see in verse 8, now for the first time, they're going to go out to battle. We see the nation of Amalek is coming out to fight Israel. And, and this may trigger in your mind, so you're thinking, okay, this is not the first time that Israel has had like a, a military opposition against them. 
right? But this is the first time that God is actually allowing them to go through this. If you remember back in chapter 13, verse 17, as, as Israel's on their way out of Egypt, God, God leads them the long way so they don't come across the Philistines, right? Because he knows they're not ready to handle that type of conflict yet. Here he leads them to go right into it. He says, you're going to go through this, you're going to engage this, you're going to lead them to victory, Moses and Joshua. And this time, there's no grumbling. There's no quarreling. Now, I'm, I'm certain if, if God came to us and told us we were going to go out into physical battle, yeah, there, there would be some hesitation involved. But Moses does not record this in the text. He says, Amalek came, they fought against Israel, and the Lord led them through the victory in verses 9 and 10. And it, it is, it's a different picture than what we've seen in all the previous testing the past two weeks, right? The first time with the water, the time with the man of the quail, this time with the water again. The people of Israel finally start to rely on God. And this time around in verses 8 through 10, you see a, a, little, it's a little bit different ending now that they are relying on God. You see that as they're growing to rely on him, they actually get to see his deliverance and his redemption. Right? Similar to how they saw it in the Red Sea, they've been seeing glimpses of it in how he provided for them. Right, He kind of graciously is showing how he delivers and he redeems to his people even when they're not faithfully falling. Now they get to see it very clearly presented in front of them and, and see it in such a way that they know that this is truly God at work. And not only, guys, I think it's, it's cool and it's, it's a, it is more than enough of a blessing to get to see God's work in our lives as he delivers and redeems. But how much more cool and amazing is it that he is actively engaging his people in this work, right? He's not delivering them by reading, leading them around the opposition. They actually get to walk with God through the opposition together. Not only do they see God's work, but they're coming alongside God in this work. This is, we've seen this the past few weeks because they had to physically go gather the manna. They had to physically go gather the quail. God was, God was teaching them to, you know, it's a very practical living in his presence. But here, same picture. They get to physically go fight against Amalek. And guys, it's, it's really cool. Each of the past two weeks as we're reading this, we're seeing the physical work of the people being both an outpouring of their new spirituality, right? They're being led to live differently because they're now in God's presence. But what he's leading them to do is also growing them in his presence, right? Like that God is not just telling them, I'm going to deliver you, I'm going to redeem you, and then he does it, and the people are just these passive bystanders. No, God is leading them to be active participants in his work, just as he leads us to be active participants. Really, as I'm as I was thinking about this this week, guys, we, last Sunday, we celebrated a couple, what we call our ministry launch, right? We, we celebrated, we started a couple different small groups. We've started uh, just kind of shifting our focus into thinking, okay, how are we going to connect with our visitors as they come here? How are we going to you know, work in our children's ministry and continue in our outreach partnerships? I mean, we we got to celebrate, hey, we have been seeing this vision kind of come together. We've been planning. We've been preparing. It's time to press go and start to see where things, you know, actually get to play out. I was very cognizant of the fact that whenever we move into those seasons, 
the temptation is always to look back and say, well, as soon as things get hard, let's just go back to what we had done, right? Like, like this season right now that we've been in, in this, this vision casting, this planning, preparing, when you start to see success of it, you want to go back and attribute it to all the hard work that we have been doing the past seven, eight months together. Guys, and, and we, should, we should celebrate that the Lord has allowed us to go through seven, eight months of this hard planning work together. And that's what we tried to do last Sunday, say, hey, God has been at work. We have been getting ready. And now that we are starting to do more, it is still going to be God that leads us and grows us into future seasons. But guys, may we not look back on this season and, and think too highly of it, right? That in future seasons, as we grow and we, we, we get into, you know, different hard moments, right? Because as we grow, things won't always be easy. When we, when we get into future hard moments, may we not almost romanticize this season and say, well, if we just go back and, and recast a vision and, and just kind of walk through the same steps, we're going to get to the same results, okay? Because at that point, we, we run the risk of just trying to make a system of how we relied on God in this season that we just reproduce. And, and guys, we, it's a delicate dance. We want to be able to reproduce the heart and the drive, but we want to be a people that are reliant upon God. And so as he grows our reliance on him in this season, preparing us for future seasons, as he continues to grow us in future seasons, and we look back on this season where, we, where we've, we've been so intentional and so thoughtful in everything we've tried to do, how do we prepare ourselves to avoid the pitfall of saying, well, let's, let's just go back because that's what's going to help us move forward. It's like how, how do we avoid relying on our system instead of relying on God. And if that's your question this morning, then you're tracking exactly with where Moses is going in the text because he shows, as God is growing his people to rely on him, he's also teaching them or preparing them for future seasons so that they will keep relying on him instead of just making a system out of whatever they did. The second piece of the puzzle this morning that as God molds us as his people by growing our our reliance on him. Guys, he grows our remembrance of him. I can't say this enough, but relying on God and remembering God go hand, hand in hand. There's actually a, a bunch of different ways we're going to walk through in this, this section of scripture where God over and over and over and over is teaching his people to remember him. If you look in chapter 16, verse 31 through 36, you see kind of a, a recap that Moses is giving the people of the, the time where they were having to you know, collect the wafers, collect the manna, collect the quail. And there's an interesting command that Moses gives them that says, hey, in verse 32, he says, this is what God has commanded. Let an omer of it, the manna, be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So they were to take their daily portion, the omer, and put it in a jar and preserve it. Now, I, I can imagine looking at what we've, we've seen as kind of like crackers in a jar is, is probably not the most grand display of what God is and, and what he has done for his people. But what it's, it's super intentional, right? God is telling the people, 
this food that I have been giving you, that is showing you how I am providing you life as you are in my presence, you need to preserve this because you will get into times where you forget that I am the one that has provided you for your life in the wilderness. And it's even more intentional that Moses says, take an omer, take just the daily amount. Don't just gather up a ton of of manna to remember. Remind that not only did God provide for your life, but he provided every single day for your life. Just the daily amount. And then he taught you what the daily amount looked like. Not only am I giving you life, my people, but I'm teaching you what that life looks like. In chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, notice how as God tells Moses to strike the rock with the staff in verse 6, he says this is a familiar staff to the people of God because it's the same one that Moses used to part the Red Sea with in verse 5. So as God is providing a familiar need, he's doing so in a familiar way. They're starting to associate, okay, when we see Moses with this staff, we've seen God deliver and redeem multiple times with this staff. God is giving his people a reminder of his deliverance, his redemption, his provision all in one. In verse 7, after they do this, Moses literally renames the physical place where they're located, Massa and Meribah. I, I love when you see instances of names being given in Scripture, guys, because in the Old Testament, especially, in the Hebrew culture, when a name was given, it was, it was very intentional, right? It, it wasn't just a, a family name, although sometimes it was. Most of the names in the Old Testament were given to teach the people of God and the other nations around them something about God. So as Moses gives, he names the place Masa, which is a noun meaning temptation, and he gives the place, the other name Meribah, which is the noun meaning strife and contention. He's teaching them that when they look back and they see this place, you know, if, if they're making a map, they have to put it on the map now because it has a name. They're getting a physical reminder of the time that they, they dared God to prove that he was with them. That they went to God and they say, God, prove to us that you're here with us. And God says, okay, we're going to rename this place so that you know this is the place where you came against me with, with this. In chapter 17, verses 11 through 13, he fights their battles with them. And, and, and he does so in a way where Moses, he's standing there with his arms stretched out and he's holding the staff. So again, the staff, the visible reminder that God has given him. But he's got his hands up, which is a, a sign of surrender, a sign of giving glory to God. Right, that, that they are not capable of doing this on their own. And as they receive the victory in verse 14, you see that they tell Moses to write all of this down, but then read it back in the ears of Joshua. Why Joshua specifically? Well, to give you a, a little bit of a spoiler alert, at the end of this season of life in Israel, when Moses passes away, Joshua becomes the one who steps in to lead God's people. So even though we are, we are years, years and years from that taking place, God is already at work, not just training his people to remember what he's doing, but training the next generation of leadership to know who God is and what he's done. Because he's, he's saying, make sure of all the people, make sure Joshua hears this. The Lord knows this is going to come into key for Joshua in the future. Guys, so, so much, I mean, we, we get to these different sections in the Old Testament narrative, and it's, 
it's tempting to just kind of gloss over, right? Like it's an interesting story or, okay, God, like we get you're trying to remind your people of who you are and what you've done. Why do we have to keep being reminded of this? Reliance and remembrance go together. Um, most of you guys know I, I also work uh, part-time at Blacksburg Transit during the week. And I just recently, back in January, moved from dry, uh, driving over into training. Uh, it, it's a blessed move, okay? I, I loved driving, but training I love even more. And I didn't think that was possible. But one of the different responsibilities I have as a trainer there is we have to get people ready for the CDL test, right? So they can actually get their license as part of it. And so as we are, as we're going through training, we're teaching them to rely on and to remember uh, several key things. One, one specific part of the CDL test requires a lot of heavy memorization. You, you have to do a walk around inspection of the vehicle and there's 55 different things you have to point out on the bus. And you have to do it correctly, and you have to say very specific language. You will say the phrase clean, secure, and not cracked more in that 20 minutes than you will ever say in your entire life. And you have to get it right, otherwise you do not pass the test. So we try to provide the trainee with, you know, these materials, and we teach them, hey, you know, rely on this. We are literally giving you the language that you have to use to pass the test. And we've learned as trainers, you can get a pretty good feel for who's going to pass the test or not based off of how much time they spent with the material outside of the classroom. Because we bring them in for a four-hour session before they take the test, and we go over all of this with them. Because it is a lot of memorization. And you realize, man, we as a people tend to rely on our memories a lot more than we, we probably realize. And our memories are not that great. Now, I, some of you that will say, well, Jordan, you're, you're younger. You should be able to remember these things. I, I can maybe a little bit better, but honestly, our memories are, are not as great as we think because we'll have trainees come in. They will not have looked at any of the materials ahead of time. They will have not spent any time reminding themselves, and they get out there, and they're you know, maybe correctly identifying a few things, but they have to get like 48 of the 55 correct in order to pass. And if you don't pass, then you don't even do the other two-thirds of the test. So there's, there's a, the act of trying to remind yourself to train your memory, train your, your body physically to remember something, goes right along hand-in-hand hand with our reliance. It's, it's interesting because I've, I've learned in different conversations with people, the work of remembering something sometimes come across as a crutch. In fact, we almost talk about memories if it's, if it's a, we talk about asking questions or asking for help as if it's a weakness, right? Like, we should be able to remember this. How could you not remember this? Guys, reliance and remembering go together. If, if we are not actively working to remind ourselves of who God is and what he's done in our lives, it's probably a good sign we are not relying on it. And if we're not relying on who God is and what he's done, we're not going to remember it at all. Reliance and remembering go hand in hand. And guys, why that is also super important is because the work of reminding tells us that God desires us to bear his image personally, not duplicate it generally. He desires us to just, if you're taking notes, pick up on this. He desires us to bear his image personally, not duplicate it generally. Here's what I mean. 
when you see God doing this work with the people. He's not doing this work in this season to turn around and teach it to somebody else or to turn around and make other people do this. He's teaching this to them for them. They have to understand this first. They have to know who God is and what he has done before they're able to go and spread it with others. Guys, from my experience in church, that's not quite our default. We tend to focus more, and, and I'll, I'll say this is true, but this is, this is true in my personal life, right? My first thought is very rarely, God, how are you calling me to change? How, what are you trying to teach me? My default is, God, what are you trying to tell that person over there? God, how would you have me reshape your culture over here? We, we think very externally before we think internally. And it's, it's just very humbling to see, yes, right, all throughout Scripture, God does command us to go and to make disciples, to go take his, his name and his image and make it known to people who don't, and to lead them in doing likewise, and then to lead them to go lead others. This is it's all throughout Scripture. It's in the mission of our church, right? We are a community that is submitted to Christ. And what did Christ do? He commanded us to make disciples. So we are committed to discipleship making. But you also see in scripture, Jesus started with the 12 and they had to know who he was and what he came to do before they were able to go lead others to do likewise. Here, God is making sure his people know who he is and what he came to do and that they are not just knowing it and reminding themselves of it, but they are reliant upon it. He is doing this before he moves them into any season where they are going to be leading other nations that don't have any clue about who God is to do likewise. Guys, these, these, two, these two works of relying upon him and remembering him are crucial. They are the backbone of what God is desiring of his people because he desires us to bear his image personally, not just duplicate it generally, right? He, it's not just for us to say, well, okay, I understand this. Let me go make sure that person lives it out. Let me go make sure that area of culture reflects it. No, we truly believe that as we bear his image personally, he leads us into our culture, into our world, to lead them to know who God is, correct? We, we see this pattern in Scripture. It, it, we can't separate those two acts. But we cannot, we cannot lead our culture and our world to bear God's image if we are not bearing his image personally ourselves. When we talk about seeing Revival in this nation, man, if it does not start within the church, it will not happen. Because God's, God's work of reliance and remembrance was given to his people. And as they engage in this work, man, he leads them to go do amazing things within their world and within their culture. What this means for us as a church is in our ministries and in our structures, everything should point us to remember who God is and what he has done and should be growing us to rely on this. This is the focus of uh, the small groups that we shared with you guys last week. We, we want to be able to build relationships with one another so that we can encourage each other to rely on who God is and that we can learn together to remember who he is and what he's done. In our missions partnerships, we want to serve the, the spiritual and the physical needs of others by helping them learn and grow. Who is God? What does he desire of us? We get to show them that physically in our service. We get to teach them that in sharing the testimony of the gospel. In our children, 
Guys, we want the next generation, all the future generations to know who God is and what he has done. That requires us to live that out in front of them, which is what Carol and her team of volunteers do so faithfully each week. Guys, they are in there right now with our kids, just showing them who God is and what he's done. And it is amazing as a parent to to get to learn, I have that responsibility as well to do that in the home. In our worship, when we sing, when we pray, when we're walking through the word, when we're in fellowship together, guys, all of this is to teach us, to train us, to remember who God is and to rely on who God is. In our leadership, right, the way we as an organization are structured is even supposed to be reflecting who God is and what he desires of us. So, so in the way that we structure our leadership and the way our leadership interacts on Tuesdays, guys, even we are held to the standard of, okay, we're going to have to rely on God for everything that we do. We're going to have to remind ourselves and, and share of, okay, how have we seen God work at the past? Where, where do we see God working in our lives now? Guys, and we, are, we are called to this and we are held to this because as he is working in the lives of his people, as he is getting them ready, as he is leading them into life with him, Guys, all of what God is, has been pointing to these past few chapters in these early stages of life with him, they have to know who he is. They have to know what he has done in their lives. And not only do they have to know it, they have to be relying on it, and they have to be reminding themselves on it. Because they don't stay in this wilderness forever. They spread out. And when his Messiah comes, when Christ comes and he calls the disciples to himself, he sends them out. Guys, so as we are moving forward into our new seasons of life and ministry together, man, in, in our daily rhythms, in our church rhythms, we are called to grow our reliance on God and grow in our remembrance of him. And I wanted to share a few ways that we can engage him in this work as we close for our, our time of response. And then we will we'll be taking in communion, which is also a way that we get to do this. Now, I want to just also just lead with the question, have, have you allowed God to mold you into his image to begin with? Uh, this is the first step. For any of us, have we committed to say, okay, Jesus, I understand that I was made for life with God and I have been broken apart from that in my sin. And so, God, I desire to be made right with you. And that can only happen because of the work that you've done in Christ. And so, Father, when we we ask your son to be our Lord and our Savior, we, we are surrendering our lives to you. We, we have to, to take that step first. So if we are able to to make that move this morning, then, then come talk with me after service. That, that would be a wonderful place for us to start. If that is a decision and a, a commitment that you have already made, I, the follow-up question would be, where do you struggle to bear his image? Guys, it is, it, it is within our nature to point the finger externally before looking within us. Dwayne, I think I was talking with you this week, and you were sharing about how there is a pastor that said, you know, whenever a pastor is preaching and they point one finger out that there's like three or four fingers pointing back at the pastor, that, it, yes, it is a visual reminder that as we are leading other people to grow and to walk in the image of God, we are called to do that work personally ourselves. And if you're trying to think about, okay, how, how do I struggle to bear his image? A, a great place to start. When is the last time you saw God soften your heart? to repent and to change something you were doing. If you can't remember, or if it's been a very long time, it may be because our default 
is to tell other people where they need to change before we consider that in our own lives. As you're thinking about that, guys, I also want to say, how, how are you held accountable to relying on and remembering God? If this is the work that God is doing within his people, how are we held accountable to it? If we know that it's not in our nature to do this, how are we held accountable? I'll share with you one, one, one primary way we, we see this in Scripture is by becoming a member of the local church, right? That, that we as a body, we gather together weekly on Sunday mornings, but also we try to see each other throughout the week to just go meet up with one another at work and in homes just wherever we're at because, hey, we are trying to learn and grow in doing this together. So be, be, being a member of a local church body says, okay, I'm, I'm committing to do this work alongside this group of people. And so, guys, if you're coming this morning and you feel the Father, the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart to say, this is the place I want to do that in, then after service, just come see me real quick and say, hey, we're, I'm interested in church membership. Like, this is, this is the family I want to plug into to do this work. Just, we'll come talk more about it. And if you're already a member here, guys, I would encourage you, as you are able, come walk with us in one of our small groups. Uh, we've got a couple different ones. Our, our community group meets on the first and third Tuesdays each month, and we're walking through the book of Acts together. And, guys, it is, it is very simple. We are reading Acts. We are asking questions about what do we see the Holy Spirit do? What are the disciples learning? We're eating food together, and we're praying. We're also starting a couple different ID groups, ID short for identity, groups of uh, a little bit smaller where we're, we're meeting and we're holding ourselves accountable to the image of God and encouraging us to live out the faith that we have been given. So if, if you're interested in learning more about these groups, come meet with me, come meet with one of our leaders after the service. We'd love to tell you because what takes place on here on Sunday mornings is just the beginning. It, we moves deeper as we dive into our small groups. So as you think about these different ways to respond, let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion together. Guys, why we take communion together is an act of relying and remembering, right? The fact that we take the blood, uh, the cup, and we take the, the bread, the body together, it, it, it teaches us drinking and eating are very fundamental things needed for life, right? This is what Christ has given us. But he has given us so much more than that. So we, they're acts of reliance and remembrance. And we will take our communion together after, after we pray. O oh God, the Holy Spirit, thou who dost proceed from the Father and the Son, have mercy on me. When thou didst first hover over chaos, order came to birth, beauty robed the world, fruitfulness sprang forth. Move, I pray thee, upon my disordered heart. Take away the infirmities of unruly desires and hateful lusts. Lift the mists and darkness of unbelief. Brighten my soul with the pure light of truth. Make it fragrant as the garden of paradise, rich with every goodly fruit, beautiful with heavenly grace, and radiant with rays of divine light. Fulfill in me the glory of thy divine offices. Be my comforter, my light, my guide, my sanctifier. Take of the things of Christ and show them to my soul. Through thee may I daily learn more of his love, his grace, his compassion, his faithfulness, his beauty. Lead me to the cross and show me his wounds. 
Show me the hateful nature of evil. Show me the power of Satan. May there I see my sins as the nails that transfixed him, the cords that bound him, the thorns that tore him, the sword that pierced him. Help me to find in his death the reality and immensity of his love. Open for me the wondrous volumes of truth in his. It is finished. Increase my faith in the clear knowledge of atonement achieved, expiation completed, satisfaction made, guilt done away, my debt paid, my sins forgiven, my person redeemed, my soul saved, hell vanquished, heaven opened, eternity made thine. O Holy Spirit, deepen in me these saving lessons. Write them upon my heart that my my walk may be sin-loathing and sin-fleeing and Christ-loving and suffer no devil's device to beguile or deceive me. It is in your heart.